welcome to stat, I'm telling you all Medical true crime stories, the nigga's bizarre Karen Wickham, yeah she used to work in ER And now she's sharing the knowledge, so let's get involved Ay, Funny and scary at the same time Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying <laughs> So tune in to stat, if you dare Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere <laughs> Yeah Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. This is Karen Wickham, and I am your host of STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thanks for joining me today from wherever you are, whenever you're listening. I'm glad to have you listening. Couldn't think of a a better word there, so I guess I need to consult my thesaurus you know, every once in a while. Anyway, it's time to give out some shout outs. First of all, for iTunes, I want to say thank you to It's Me, Steph D. Thank you. Panda for NU. Sangarella and Treadmill Woman. Thank you guys for your support, for your positive reviews. It means a whole heck of a lot to me. And if you haven't given me a review yet, I'd really appreciate it. Just don't even have to write anything. Maybe just give a a couple of stars. I'd really appreciate that. Next, I want to say thank you to some new Patreon supporters. First of all, to Ember at Fiercely Altered Perspective. Her and her husband do a fantastic podcast that you need to go check out. It's true crime, but not just that. It's full of a whole bunch of interesting subject matter and they have great chemistry, go check out Fiercely Altered Perspective. Next, I want to give a thank you to Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss. This is a really smart lady who has a lot to say. She's a psychologist and just just go listen to her. Ignorance Was Bliss. And last but not least, I want to say thank you to Molly Cat 75 Thank you. Your patronage means so much to me and it's helped me to get some new equipment, which I hope that you guys are enjoying listening to because I am enjoying using it. (laughs) Next, it's really important to announce that it is Nurses Week. So please go out and give some nurses a hug. And if they don't want to be hugged, a smile, a thank you, because they do such incredible work for us. I want to say thank you to all you nurses for all your hard work and for the times that you have helped take care of me and my family and just to everybody that I've ever worked with. I think you're phenomenal and we're an inspiration to make myself a better nurse every day. Thank you, nurses. Okay. Deep breath here. Let's get started on the Kermit Gosnell case. This is a case that I have done a lot of soul searching over. I have seen some of the worst things that can happen or be done to a person. Not much shocks me anymore, but it still affects me nonetheless. But this story is not one that I can get out of my head. I just can't shake it. It's not just one atrocity, but thousands. It's just not one broken law, but tens of crimes. Thousands if you break them down. Crimes so vile that it's almost impossible to think that one person, a monster, could cause them all. 
Why have I struggled with covering this case? Well, for many reasons, and let me, let me list them. First of all, it involves babies. Murders of babies. It's graphic. It's dark. It's depraved. I don't think that there could be any worse subject matter, in my opinion. And it involves a hot-button topic. I don't shy away from those, but I do not want the important messages from this episode to get lost in politics. So how do I tell a story with the graphic content and keep the respect for victims? I don't know if I can totally do that, but I'm going to do my best. Because respect can't be taken away from, for them from me, but for the person that perpetrated it. What I can do is tell it minimally with compassion. And I think it has to be told. This is the kind of horror that happens all over the world, even hidden in decent neighborhoods, surrounded by good, hardworking people. The media, the media. The media was reluctant to cover it. And they pretty much had to be shamed into covering it. And that's probably why so many people still don't know the name Kermit Gosnell, just because it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. They said it was too sensitive a topic, too disturbing, too politically charged, too ghoulish even for them. The most prolific serial killer that has ever been born in America an American-made Mangala. This is not a story to be told? I disagree. One of the things I find so outrageous and ironic is that it wasn't an inspection that busted this guy that broke everything wide open to stop his massacre of women and children. No, he was under suspicion for illegal drug distribution. The FBI was looking into him writing prescriptions and making money off it for uh, opiates. Yes, as we all know, the war on drugs in America is way more important than women and babies. And when I say babies, I'm not talking about first trimester here. I'm talking about second and third trimester. Many times these Babies were over 30 weeks or close to full term. That's right. When I look back at the reasons why I didn't want to cover this case, it pales in comparison for why I should. I will tell this with the utmost of compassion, empathy, and respect. I will not be able to avoid the gruesome aspects, but I will only tell the minimal to support the story. And even those are probably too much for some. Please turn this off now if you think that you will find this too disturbing. This is not safe for work. And I don't need to tell you that children should not listen to this. Before I start, I want to make something very clear. My telling of this story is not going to be about pro-life or pro-choice. I want to quote something from the grand jury report on this case that I think best describes my intent. Quote, let us say right up front that we realize this case will be used by both sides of the de abortion debate. We ourselves cover a spectrum of personal beliefs about morality of abortion. 
This is not about that controversy. It is about the disregard of the law and the disdain for the lives of women and infants. We find common ground in exposing what happened. End of quote. And on that note, let's get started. I'm going to take you through a labyrinth of death. I want you to step inside this building with me. We'll go in together. We arrived in a nice blue collar neighborhood in West Philadelphia. It's at the corner of 38th and Lancaster. It's a red brick, three-story, decent looking building. And there is a sign out front that tells us it's the home of the Women's Medical Society. Sounds like a nice place to see a doctor. After all, this is where women go to get some direction and help for unwanted pregnancy. I'm sure that they will be kind and non-judgmental. They deal with this every day, right? When we walk to the door, the first thing that hits us when we go into the dingy and filthy office, it is the overwhelming stench of cat urine. In fact, there is cat urine all over the walls, cat feces everywhere. The flea infested cats that live there wander from room to room and lie all over everything. There is blood on the floor. There are semi-conscious women moaning in waiting rooms or recovering rooms ready to get their abortions or recovering from them. They are sitting in filthy recliner chairs with blood-stained blankets on their laps that only get washed once a week. All these women had been sedated by licensed staff, sedated into a stupor. We walk back into the surgical rooms where the abortions are performed and they are filthy and unsanitary. The instruments were unsterile and the disposable equipment and supplies are being reused over and over again. The oxygen equipment is covered with dust and has not been inspected in a very long time. The same corroded suctioning equipment used for abortions is the only suction equipment that is used to suction oral airways if assisted is needed with breathing. The resuscitation equipment doesn't work and there is not any monitoring equipment except for a dirty blood pressure cuff. Moving around this clinic is like trying to maneuver yourself through a labyrinth of hell. The clinic is made up of three separate buildings joined haphazardly, joined by narrow and scary hallways. There is only one way in and out of the building other than the front entrance, and that is through the emergency exit, in which there are boxes cluttered in front of it, and it is padlocked, and no one knows where the key is. While winding our way through this building, we come across a true horror, something that no one could ever prepare themselves for even the most grizzled veterans. There are fetal remains recklessly stored in the clinic in bags, in milk jugs, orange juice cartons, and even cat food containers. Some fetal remains are in a refrigerator and others are frozen. There is a row of jars containing severed feet of fetuses. In the basement, there is medical waste piled high. The stench is horrific. 
and sometimes this medical waste is not picked up for weeks at a time because the owner of this clinic, Dr. Gosnell, doesn't pay his waste disposal bill. I think it's time to leave. Kermit Gosnell committed some of the worst crimes known to man. He mutilated and murdered mothers and babies, and he did this for over 40 years. This description doesn't even begin to describe the depths of his depravity. Like everything, there is a beginning and eventually an end. Logic dictates that I start at the beginning. Is it possible to learn the development of a psychopath? The nature versus nurture paradigm? Well, I believe in both. Some way more heavy on one side than the other, but I believe in both. An aspect of this case that's been tricky is finding out about Kermit Gosnell's life before he started to commit these or started to commit these crimes. One person by the name of Steve Volk, a reporter for the Philadelphia magazine and author of Gosnell's Babies, did get to know this man a little bit. He was able to get inside his head. I recommend that you pick up a copy of Gosnell's Babies. I was able to download it from on Kindle, so maybe you can go check it out. Steve Volk was one of the only reporters that attended every day of the eight-week trial. That, to me, says a lot because you think the courtroom would have been full of reporters of people clamoring to find out what's going on. But no, with Steve Volk and maybe another one or two people, reporters, because, like I said, they were afraid of this case. Steve Volk had a relationship with Gosnell that few had. He was able to discuss many things with Gosnell, his childhood, school years, and career. And what's more astonishing was the correspondence that Gosnell sent to him. 12 letters, which included poems, over 50 emails, and more than two dozen phone calls. I can't imagine the kind of restraint it would take to talk to this creep. How hard would it have been to carry on a civil conversation and some of the things he would say? I commend Volk for doing it, and because it helps us all understand the mind of a monster. It seems at the end of it all that, in part, Gosnell still remains an enigma. I'm going to start with a quote from the book, Gosnell's Babies. As a narrator of his own life, Gosnell is both open and confounding, honest and unreliable. His manner relaxed and even breezy, his tone more like that of a man with no serious cares than one who is incarcerated for life. End of quote. Gosnell was born on February 9, 1941. He was named after his father, Kermit Gosnell. Gosnell and therefore his family are African American. And his father believed that because of the times and the rampant racism, that a man had to rely on many skills and that because there was no job security. He was a mechanic, a laborer, a carpenter, and a plumber. He did all of these things while operating a gas station in West Philly. His son followed in his footsteps and learned the same. They also shared a love of gardening and tropical fish. Gosnell Jr.'s work ethic matched that of his father. 
However, he wanted bigger and better things for himself, and these dreams and aspirations seemed to be driven by his mother. She was a city employee who pushed Gosnell to excel at academics. She pushed him and only gave him any kind of approval when he excelled. Gosnell admitted this in a quote, I felt tremendous pressure from my mother, so there was never any question that I would work very hard in school and make something of myself. End of quote. Gosnell had a talent for music, enough so that he was able to attend Settlement Music School and a good enough student to attend Central High. And he was very popular. He decided to go into medicine at the strong urging of his mother, though he would have preferred to have a career in music. He graduated from Dickinson College and he attended Jefferson for medical school and residency, class of 66. He had an interest in obstetrics and gynecology, although he never gained a specialty in it. What happens next, I believe, marks the beginning of his deviance. While he was a resident, a neighbor of his named Sandy approached him for an abortion. Gosnell was hesitant to perform the abortion as he stated that he felt that he didn't have enough experience to do one. Sandy convinced him to perform it when she said to him, quote, you certainly know more than I do, end of quote. So this is his first abortion that he performed and the first one that he received payment for. Next, he was asked by a teenage girl and her grandmother, and there were even more requests after that. In 1970, Hale Harvey, a physician from New Orleans, had moved to New York to perform illegal abortions. He opened a clinic called Women's Services, and they recruited the young Dr. Kermit, who had already been performing illegal abortions, as you know. Kermit had already been working at an addiction treatment center and drew a connection in his mind, and this is what he wrote to Volk. Quote, The most overwhelming burden for patients was the burden of responsibility for mothers who were hopelessly trapped, unable to pursue their own potentials, and additional life child was intolerable. End of quote. It seems that, that even that early in his life, he did not believe women could rise above hard times, that their love for their children could help them succeed and be successful in life. He felt that he had the only cure, abortion. I think this is an important time to talk about the abortion laws in the 1970s, just as Gosnell began his career as an abortionist. Like I said, abortion is a highly charged topic. Then, breaking an abortion law was more than just a crime, it was a political event. Pro-life versus pro-choice. And each side of the Republican and Democratic side had their own beliefs. But it was as heated then as it is now. It was a time of women's liberation movements. It was a woman's right to choose whether or not to end a pregnancy, hence the name pro-choicers. Conversely, abortion was tantamount to murder for pro-lifers. Any doctor who could provide safe abortions were considered heroes to the pro-choicers, even if the staff weren't all that qualified, and even some of the feminists of that time encouraged the illegal activity just to prove their point. One of the players in this was this weirdo named Harvey Carmen. 
He was an abortionist and fake doctor psychologist who forged his medical con- uh, credentials. He was convicted of a felony after he killed a mother when he attempted to abort her baby in a hotel room with a nutcracker in 1955. For that grotesque crime, he only served two and a half years in prison. And after that, he became such a hero to the pro-abortion movement that he was pardoned by Governor Jerry Brown. Carmen was obsessed with abortion, and he was determined to make it as easy and economical as possible. He invented the Carmen cannula, a suction device used widely today for first trimester abortions. And once he got notoriety for that, he then set out to revolutionize second trimester abortions. And he came up with one of the most barbaric I don't even know what to call it. Treatments, tools, torture, tools called the super coil. I'm going to ask you to prepare yourself for this because this is just horrific. The first time I read this, I literally gasped out loud. There was a device that he was working on and this abortion apparatus was basically plastic razors that were formed into a ball. They were then coated with gel so that they would remain closed until the woman's body temperature heat them up. This would be inserted into a woman's uterus. And like I said, after several hours, the body temperature would melt the gel and 97 razors would spring open, cutting up the fetus. And then it was hoped that it would be expelled. Dr. Sidney Wolf, a physician with the Health Research Group, describes supercoils as high-class coat hangers. At the time, they were considered a safe and revolutionary medical device. Can you believe that? <laughs> I'm really trying to keep my cool here when I'm talking. <laughs> I guess you guys are used to me chirping in by now, but honestly, if you saw me, my face is really red. <laughs> Oh, okay. I just want to stick. Stick to the facts, Jack. Supercoils were first tested in Bangladesh, where the International Planned Parenthood Federation flew Carmen on a humanitarian mission to perform abortions on more than 1,500 women who had been raped by Pakistani soldiers. The mothers on whom Carmen used this supercoil suffered an enormous rate of complications. So they were raped, and because they may have been carrying Pakistani soldiers' babies, they were put through this horrific, horrific torture. Carmen enlisted a willing Gosnell to pull a publicity stunt on Mother's Day 1972 to prove the efficacy of the supercoil. This day goes down in history as the Mother's Day Massacre. In 1972, a group of 15 women in their second trimester were bused from Chicago to Gosnell's Philadelphia offices on Mother's Day for abortions. What unfolded, like I said, was known as the Mother's Day Massacre. 
Those women were not told that Gosnell intended to use them as guinea pigs for the supercoil. This was not a device that was sanctioned by the FDA. It was something that Carmen and Gosnell decided to use on these women. A film crew from New York even caught the experiments on film. Nine. Nine of the 15 women were severely injured. One required a total hysterectomy. A joint federal-state investigation found that these women suffered serious hemorrhaging, infections, and portions of the unborn baby was left inside them. Which is still a common problem today. After the incident, Gosnell fled the country and he went to the Bahamas. That's right. He completely mutilates a bunch of women and then he fucks off to the Bahamas because he's such a chicken shit that he was going to get caught. He knew he did something wrong. So he went and took a vacation in the Bahamas until the heat cooled down. This is what Gosnell said when he explained his reasons for leaving the country. Quote, If the State Board of Medicine hadn't brought any charges against you, all right. And if you were away long enough, you could come back and your license was still considered to be in good standing. End of quote. Gosnell unfortunately was right. The Pennsylvania Board of Medicine ignored his role in the grotesquely unsuccessful experiment which seriously damaged women. And when he came back, he was able to open up another practice and continue on with giving abortions to women in the most horrific way possible. Woo! I'm going to end that right there. It was a lot, a lot of information I gave you guys. A lot to digest. And I hope it wasn't too much for you to listen to. But, yeah, it's uh, important to talk about because so much of this still continues to go on and we can't let this continue. We need to support women's rights. But that's a whole other subject for a whole other day. So stay tuned for the continuing saga of Kermit Gosnell. And that episode will be out soon. Okay, ladies and gents. I think we can all agree that we could use a little bit of suture room right now. So come on in. Follow me down the hallway to the most chill and relaxing place in the ER. This time I was able to get in two beds so that you could bring a friend along if you want and you could share a giggle together. You can have a juice with two straws. I'll even get you a couple of packets of cookies. And I'm gonna sneak down one of the extra special cheese sandwiches that only come with butter. I have a hint. If you stick it in the microwave for a couple seconds and you close your eyes and you dream real hard, you might actually believe that you have a grilled cheese sandwich, but only if you try hard. So let me plump up your pillows, 
and pull up your warm blankies and get you settled in to this true, wild, and wacky story that I experienced working in the ER. Okay, you guys have to know that it takes a bit of a sense of humor in order to survive some days at work. Everybody experiences. It's one of those things where if you didn't laugh, if you didn't lighten things up, that you would either cry, rock in the corner, or quit. And same thing in the hospital. So this is funny, not funny. Okay, just letting you know. There was a patient that was actually put in the suture room. Not your suture room, but another suture room, let's just say. And I had walked by the room once or twice and I saw this gentleman sitting on a bed. He was in his 20s and he was sitting there and he had sort of, he kept putting a towel up to his forehead and I could see that there was bleeding coming from his, his forehead area. And he had some blood on his, you know, his shirt and stuff. And yeah, he was just sort of sitting there and, you know, looking a little bit queasy. He had a little thing of juice beside him. And I thought, oh, he's, he's waiting to maybe get a suture for laceration on his head kind of thing. And that day I'd sort of been like an extra on the floor. I, I was working in trauma. It was quiet that day. And so I was sort of, you know, boogieing around helping out here and there. And I was asked if I could uh, assist or at least go check in on the, the guy in the suture room. One of the nurses said to me, he got a, a laceration on his head and that also he had a few like in his, like on his scalp under his hair. And that I need to sort of peek around in there and uh, and see what's going on. So take a look at it and maybe I can clean it up a bit before the doctor went in. So I went into the room, introduced myself and all that thing. And had a bit of a, a cleaning, like saline tray all, all ready. And I started looking into his, his hair. And I was as I was moving the hair around... I pulled up on a few pieces and most of his scalp came off. That's right. Most of his scalp pulled back. Lots of blood came forth. You see, this guy was wearing a pair of sunglasses on his forehead. Like on, you know, you flip them up on your forehead so you can see without sunglasses. Or just because it looks so damn cool. So he's in his car driving with his sunglasses on his forehead and he had to slam on the brakes because there was a car in front of him that came to a, a quick stop and he pretty much scalped himself with his sunglasses. I kind of felt, well, I felt quite queasy and I kind of went, oh, oh, I, I, I see. Okay. All right, then we'll just... Uh, We'll just leave that right there and told him that everything was going to be okay and and uh, not to worry and we'll get him fixed up in no time. And as I left the room with like, I don't know what going through my brain, I turned the corner and there are a couple of nurses pissing themselves laughing 
because they failed to tell me what happened to this guy. So yeah, they set me up. Sounds like a horrible, cruel, and terrible thing to do to that poor gentleman, but he had been given some medication. He didn't really feel it. And he was fine. Nothing bad happened. And yeah, that's the kind of fun jokes that can happen now and then. And I hope that you enjoyed today's Suture Room. <laughs> I might regret telling you guys this one. Ah, but anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's Suture Room. And I hope it sort of lightened the burden of the things that you would just listen to prior to this. So thank you for joining me today. And please tune in for the next upcoming episode. I will have a hardcore ER coming up next, followed by another continuing episode of Gosnell. If you don't mind, if you could stop by iTunes and write me up a little review or even just rate me, I'd really appreciate that. And maybe go check out my Patreon page and see some of the cool things that I can offer you if you can help me out a little bit. Okay, so please, please, please take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Love one another and most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.